I'm a booger. I'm a booger booger. I'm a booger. I'm a booger 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 booger. Thank you for downloading this episode of I'm a Booker Booker, a novel podcast about books and the people who write them. I'm a Booker Booker embarked on a quarantine chronicles series, interviewing an author a day for the 21-day lockdown. The country's finest authors invited us into their homes, digitally speaking. They read to us, answered questions, and allowed us to subject them to our world-famous sound effects Rorschach test so we could get a glimpse of the dark and disturbing things going on in their subconscious. Today, when the initial lockdown was scheduled to end, we broadcast our 21st episode. We hope we have provided you with a brief respite from the pandemic. We will continue to produce episodes, not daily though, but every now and again. So be sure to subscribe to Ama Booker Booker on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Today is a very special edition of Ama Booker Booker. We pay tribute to and celebrate the life of Matthew Buckland, a tech wonder kid, a digital fundi, an entrepreneur, an innovator a journalist, a publisher, an author, a mountain biker, and a compulsive dreamer who had big dreams. Matt always had a sparkle in his eye and a million buck grin. In the middle of 2018, Matt was diagnosed with an aggressive form of cancer. On the day of his first chemo session in October, he started to write a book about his entrepreneurial journey, which had seen him turn the Mail and Guardian into Africa's foremost website, establish a division at Naspers, and launch his own agency, Creative Spark. Two months after he started writing, he sent the manuscript to his publisher. Matt died on the 23rd of April last year, just a few months before his book, So You Want to Build a Startup, was published. He was just 44. He was gone way too soon, leaving behind his wife Bridget, daughters Isabel and Stella, brothers Daniel and Luke, and parents Janet and Andrew, and a great deal of friends. I am lucky enough to have been one of them. So You Want to Build a Startup is a very readable account of the difficulties and the fun of building a business. It is filled with practical advice for entrepreneurs on how to open the door to opportunity. In 2012, I made a podcast on Elon Musk. This was before the Playboy billionaire called one of the Thai cave rescuers a pedo. I interviewed Matt about Elon. As a child, Elon had made money from selling a video game. I asked Matt about the first money that he had made from tech. Do you remember the first money you made from tech? Hmm. <laughs> I, I do, actually. It was, uh, I remember, two distinct occasions. Uh, um, one, I think I would have been around about eight years old, um, and we created um, something called a circuit game. Do you know what a circuit game is? No. Okay, so basically you take a, a coat hanger and yeah. you mangle it up, and you connect the one side to a battery, the other side to a light bulb, and then you have another part of it, and you've got to kind of go through the coat hanger, the curls of the coat hanger, and you, if you make a circuit, you lose, lose the game. And uh, my friend and I, a guy by the name of Nikolai, who was in school with me, we set up a, uh, um, a, a table on 15th Street in Parkhurst in Joburg, and uh, we charged passers-by um, 20 cents to have a go. <laughs> and if they made it from one end of the circuit to the other, um, they would win five rand. So we made 15 rand that day. But, um, yeah, we, we buried that money in the garden. And uh, yeah, I guess that was our first entrepreneurial journey around, around tech. 
Joining us today is Matt's father, Andrew Buckland. Thank you very much and welcome to Amma Booker Booker, Andrew. Could you please read us an extract from Matt's book? Sure, thank you. Thank you for doing this uh, tribute. Um, I'll read if I can get through it. The opening of the book, chapter one, which he calls Activism, Entrepreneurship and the Early Internet. He says, I've always been driven in whatever I do. It took me many years to understand why this is the case. Was my intense competitiveness instilled by the South African school system? Or was it a sense that as South Africans, we need to work harder and prove ourselves more? I came to realize that my drive mostly stemmed from a secret I had harbored for a very long time, one that made me want to attain success no matter what the cost, but which helped me develop and maintain a laser-like focus on anything I undertook. I'll tell you more about the secret in a later chapter. I'm the oldest of three brothers, part of a family that was quite well known in theater circles. From a young age, I had a sense that my parents were successful, maybe not in the financial sense, but certainly in the intellectual and artistic sense. We lived in Parkhurst, Johannesburg in the 1980s. Everywhere we went, my father was noticed. People would stop and get, get his autograph or say, aren't you the girl TV? My father felt embarrassed while the rest of the family enjoyed the reflected glory. I remember thinking to myself that I wanted some of that attention and glory. My parents are amazing people. During the days of apartheid, my father put on satirical shows criticizing the white minority government. The most famous was the ugly Nunu, a play based on the hideous Parktown prawn that terrorized Johannesburg's wealthy suburbs. My mother was a teacher who also wasn't afraid to call out the government's oppressive and racist homeland policies. She did an exercise at the school hall and at the then all-white Queens High School, where students had to cram onto narrow tables to show how ridiculous it was that the majority of the country's population was restricted to living in cramped townships and designated homelands, while the white minorities spread themselves over 90% of the land. She was visited by the official government school inspectors who wanted to understand why these new, quote, subversive, unquote, teaching techniques. My mother would later go on to win the prestigious National Woman of the Year Award for the dance teaching and upliftment work that she did in the Grahamstown Township, Khuni. I was proud of my parents. They had achieved peer recognition for the work they did and stood up for what they believed in, despite it being unpopular at the time. I, too, wanted to be significant, to be noticed, to make a difference. I wanted to make a mark on the world. That desire became deeply ingrained and would influence me for years to come. It would form part of my drive to succeed and conquer. While living in Joburg, I remember my parents returning one evening, wide-eyed and breathless, from the United Democratic Front rally. The UDF was a major anti-apartheid organization of the 1980s, a non-racial coalition of about 400 civic church students, workers, and other organizations. Its goal was to establish a non-racial united South Africa in which segregation is abolished and which society is free from institutional and systematic racism. Its slogan was, UDF unites, apartheid divides. The UDF event my parents attended had been violently broken up by the security police using tear gas. I remember disapproving of their being there. At that age, I just wanted my mother to be a tuck shop mom and not an anti-apartheid activist. Only years later would I look back on the unpopular stand they took so bravely and realize what it all meant. It would fill me with pride. Things were changing in South Africa. I was fortunate that I didn't serve in the apartheid army, 
It was compulsory for all white South African males to serve in the military, which usually meant suppressing ANC protests in the townships. The call-up had been reduced from two years to one, and an army rep called my house to find out why I had not been reported. I had not reported for duty. I remember my dad answering the phone and saying, Matthew Buckland, no, he doesn't live here. That was the last we heard from the South African military. And the next year, conscription was abolished. I had attended an end conscription campaign protest meeting in Soweto with my father the year I was in matric. I was 18 years old, and this was the first time I was exposed to that sprawling black South African township on the outskirts of affluent Joburg. This is how we lived in South Africa, together but apart. The Group Areas Act meant that white South Africans and black South Africans lived in separate areas and were not allowed to mix except when work required it. I was shocked at the squalor and poverty right there on our doorstep and amazed that I had been so oblivious to it. I remember feeling scared to be in Soweto. It was technically South Africa, but it was foreign to me. The trip touched me to such an extent that I wrote an essay that was published and picked up an award, Planet Soweto, Another World. The experience in Soweto was part of an awakening, a dawning sense that the world was not fair, that it needed changing and was there for us to mold and that we should not accept unquestioningly what we are told or even take the world at face value. There are lessons for us here in entrepreneurship. The activist and the entrepreneur are not too far apart. Both disagree with the world order. They refuse to accept the status quo and feel the world is there for them to change and shape. How's that? Perfect. Thank you, Andrew. Andrew, sure. what, what was Matt like as a child? Do you have any stories or anecdotes about him growing up that you could share with us? I see that at his memorial, you know. I, I, I don't know if you can imagine having a child like this. Uh, this who was um, from day one, he would just question every, every rule, every bit of authority, every decision that had been made um, on his behalf, but without him making it, you know. So as a parent, uh, it, was, it was hard work because um, there was a constant questioning of the way things were and why should it be that way um, and a very kind of independent way of viewing the world. So, you know, he says he was uh, driven and he had the sense that, that um, um, you know, things didn't need to be the way they were. But I, I seem to remember that from when he was really small, very alive, very aware of what was going on around him and very, very quick to question. Um, but with, um, with such a sense of humor and such a, a kind of delight in, in the, the, the debate and the argument, certainly when we were growing up as a family, we, um, well, all five of us are pretty um, opinionated, I guess. We have clear opinions. <laughs> so holidays, after a few years, the games of risk were absolutely banned because... <laughs> The level of emotional um, excitement um, was just became too much and too kind of actually a bit destructive because there, there was such a strong sense of, of each person's opinion. But Matthew was always more than willing. He kind of took a stand to play the devil's advocate in any of our discussions, you know, political discussions or social discussions, talking about climate change or anything that we would always get you know, caught up in. He would delight in taking the playing devil's advocate and taking the contrary point of view um, um, to try and deepen the level of the debate and to try and question and kind of shake us out of our comfortable echo chamber of kind of re just reinforcing our own opinions. So he was an amazing um, 
amazingly courageous, you know, from that point of view. And I think while he did it very freely and 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 loudly in the home environment with us, and he was very quick to challenge things that he felt were were not fair. Um, I think, you know, from what I could gather, the surprise that I got from the tributes to him during the memorial was that, was how kind and how respectful he was in those contexts and how what a good listener he was in those contexts, how, how much, how careful he was to hear everyone's point of view uh, before he, he put his own word out there. So uh, it seemed to carry on, but in a, in, a, in, a, you know, in a different kind of way, different kind of a language that he'd found. But I was very proud to, to hear that he combined a, a humanity and a humility and, and a, you know, a kindness with his um, challenge of the world order. <laughs> when did you notice that he had an entrepreneurial bent? In fact, from a young age, he goes on to describe in that, that chapter was, I don't know, 80, in the 1980s. And the kids coming back from school, uh, he was, uh, became obsessed about the ZX spectrum. He desperately wanted. Now we didn't know what a ZX Spectrum was, you know, <laughs> next to a, a, a bicycle. But um, we managed to scrape together some money. We didn't have a lot in those days, but we managed to get and, and got him one. And straight away, the way in which he engaged with that and with his friends, they were already starting to write code and, and develop their own games around the thing. Um, and when questioned about it, you know, if you, the normal kind of questions of a, of a child that age. Uh, he was born um, 74, so, you know, he was, you know, before he was, uh, I suppose, about 10 or so, uh, uh, I would ask him, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to, I'm going to do, I'm going to make a lot of money. I'm going <laughs> to um, use my skills to, to, to make a big um, impact, you know. Um, but so from a very young age, his way of dealing with the world was not, um, was not purely as an observer it was someone who was would see something an opportunity and immediately look to engage and tackle with it in order to make it something productive or you know um beyond just being curious you and janet are both i can't say when that like that very young i can't say what age exactly but from very very small you and janet are both actors um, the arts and business world don't often collide was matt rebelling against his parents by going into the corporate world <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I think that's where he found the uh, that's where he found the most uh, challenge for his you know his interests and his skills. Certainly, tech from an early age was that was where he his heart lay, you know, and his real uh, fascination. Um, um, and we had certainly, as parents, kind of actively uh, um, deterred the kids from seeing theatre and, and the performing arts as a as a way of being because. Uh, and they also had a clear sense that you know the, it lacks glamour in actual fact, um, and it's just hard work, and there's a lot of disappointments, and it's not you know not the way it's kind of painted to be, and often in the, in in different kind of contexts. So they had a real hands-on sense of of how difficult it was, how much hard work it was, how much it relied on chance as well as hard work and you know innate uh, talent. So he, I don't think he ever saw it as something that he wanted to do as a as a lifelong thing. He was in school plays and that, but uh, and Janet very very has always been, and that's why I've, you know we often work together. Is uncompromising in her critique, so they didn't get away with oh that was lovely, darling. You know, it was, <laughs> they got very clear responses on where they could grow as as performers or theatre makers or whatever. So, but I don't think that put him off. He, um, from early on, though, his writing was uh, was really interesting and very personal and very uh, 
I found it quite compelling. And I didn't read a lot for years after that until he started to write this book. You know, I, I came across it only after he'd been diagnosed and when he was in treatment. He'd already been uh, writing articles and collecting them, you know, stuff that he'd been writing for the Business Day and for other publications. He'd been collecting those, I think, with an idea of, of producing a book. Yeah. Um, but I don't know that. How sorry, did God? Matthew cope with the diagnosis? Uh, it made him incredibly angry um, and frustrated, obviously. You know, he'd, he'd just reached an incredible point in his life where he had achieved this great dream that he'd had his whole life, you know, to make this, this company, this tech company, and build it in the most amazing way to such an incredible size, and then to sell it and be in a position where he could then choose the kind of work he wanted to do and be in a situation where he was, you know, he could, he, he had taken care of his family. They, you know, the kids are, and, and Bridget were sorted for the rest of their lives for in terms of education and everything, but he'd achieved so many of his goals. And he was now, particularly since he'd taken up biking, uh, mountain biking, he was uh, in a very, very powerful place and he was in his power. And he felt if we got into discussions, there was much less, much less kind of not aggro, but a kind of um, driven energy to be right, you know, or to win the argument or to, to convince someone. There's a much surer sense of his own position in the world and being sure of what he knew and how he knew it and of his experience. And the fact that he was also um, often put in a position where he was leading people, you know, he'd, he'd, um, he'd mentored a lot of people and a lot of people were coming to him for, for guidance. And he felt I think he really enjoyed having that experience and being able to share that. So when he was diagnosed, he was very, very angry and frustrated that having just achieved all of his things, you know, this the diagnosis, which because it was esophageal cancer, that only presents when you far down the road. So, you know, he was diagnosed at, at uh, stage four. So it, it wasn't as if we could say, oh, okay, this is going to be an easy fight. You know, we knew if we had a chance for him to survive, it was going to be a very hard fight. And in fact, um, you know, it was in hindsight, it was, um, there wasn't really any hope. So, so he went into it very angry and frustrated and very trying very hard to, to be, to maintain is the way he was, the way he was working, the way he was riding, at the same time as changing his lifestyle, changing his diet and trying to confront and the, the treatment and, and what that was doing to his body as well. So yeah. that was very, very hard for him. You, you took over the final edits in the weeks after Matt's death. That must have been an incredibly emotional and difficult thing to do. For you, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I can't say I, I, I really edited. You know, the, the the real editing was done by the by the publishers, um, Tafelberg. So, but what happened was in the early uh, stages, uh, after he'd started his treatment, he would just write us. You know, we would stay in WhatsApp contact. You know, and then suddenly there would be this real long, chunky WhatsApp about how he was feeling and his personal responses. And I, I said to him, this is absolutely amazing writing. And, uh, you know, I, I encouraged his journaling, not only for, he should write separately for us to read and for just himself to read and for his family. So that it became much more, the writing of the book became much more a combination of his own responses, his ability to access his own um, 
authentic emotional responses to things combined with his his understanding of what um, you know the book was about, which is a kind of um, help help you guide, I suppose. But at the same time, uh, that it's filled with so much of his own personal and emotional responses and his view of himself, you know, his ability to critique himself in the early stages. Um, I think that was already there, but I was amazed by his writing. So he would often, um, once he had a draft, he got it. He would allow me to go through it and give him feedback on on the, on the, the writing itself and how accessible it was from someone who wasn't tech savvy. Um, so that was, you know, at that stage we were also in the middle of the fight. So our our attitude, Janet and mine, and and Bridget's and, and Matt's was very much that anything that you know that gave him energy or that gave him direction was something that would, would fire up his body to fight this, this fucking cancer. So um, it was a, it felt like a weapon, you know, to, to look at the work and to give him feedback and that. But, uh, but essentially, you know, as I say, when the, when it came to the proper official editing, that was really um, his, I kind of proofed it, if you like, uh, towards the end as well. And then the last uh, section, um, we all did. Uh, Matt would do, uh, would be reading it uh, to Dan or Daniel would be reading it to Matt. He was too weak at the end uh, to read, and then he would comment and make adjustments. So it was it became very much a family thing, I guess, in a small way. You, you mentioned that there was an outpouring of of love for Matt when he died, but did you realize how universally admired and loved he was? No, I knew. We knew that you know he was uh, he was very successful, and that. That he'd worked so hard for it, and and you know we'd followed through all his battles and and struggles, and, and you know he was very open with us about what that was going on. But I had no sense of how he was perceived by other people. You know, for me, as a as a you know successful businessman, that he had to had to have been um, fairly ruthless. You know, that's not to say that inhumane or whatever, but he had to be very decisive and very clear. And strong and powerful and sure about his ideas and that, but I had no sense of how much how much he was respected, not just for his, um, his business acumen and his technology, and but for his ability or for his willingness to share that, you know, and to and to mentor people and to to hear and to listen to people. I was amazed at that. It broke my heart. How would you remember Matt? Uh, that's impossible to say. I have his whole life. We have his whole life um, um, all the time, every day, you know. So like, we try not to dwell on, on the last few weeks, which are just brutal, brutal, brutal. Um, so it's those times when, I guess, um, I, I don't know, I can't say one thing, which is just uh, this... We were lucky enough to, you know, to be in part of his life, his whole life. So I remember, I suppose, his his um, his joy and his his ability to laugh, to like really, you know. And if I remember him with his kids, the joy that he had from them, and the kind of the energy that he that he would spend on them, this kind of ability to to in a childlike way just engage with them. He always always had such a ready laugh. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's that would be the the thing that I would turn to when when I'm when I feel broken when we feel broken by it. I, I try and remember that. Matt and Vince Mayer were two tech geeks in a pod. Both came from traditional journalism backgrounds, 
but went on to become digital pioneers. They worked together and were good mates. Vince, what was Matt like as a friend and to work with? Matthew was probably one of the most influential people that I've ever worked with uh, in terms of his impact on my career and the way that I look at our industry. We studied together and we sort of became friends during one of the Highway Africa conferences where he was traveling back down from Johannesburg to Grahamstown and we spent quite a lot of time together in the rats and parrots as ex-rodents do. Um, and we worked together for a year and a half at the Mail and Guardian. And that, that time period was probably one of the most productive in my career in terms of producing new startup concepts uh, in the media space. Can you tell us about Matt's impact on the digital news world? So Matt was an interesting character because... Um, like many entrepreneurs, he, had, he was very business savvy and he was very sort of organizationally minded, but he also had this like really great passion for, for journalism, uh, for, for what later became known as content. Um, and he was very deeply committed to pushing technological boundaries while like building businesses around content. So at the time, um, some of the things that were kind coming out of the Mail and Guardian, like really, I think, like influenced the rest of the media industry. Like we started a Thought Leader blog, which was probably one of the sort of most impactful blogging platforms for a while in South Africa, because just purely on the quality of the, the authorship that we, we co-opted into the platform. Um, in the blogging space itself, he and I launched something called Amatomo, which was the first blogging measurement platform for South African bloggers. And the impact of that was suddenly you could see what the entire landscape of the blogging community looked like and see it ranked by volume of people that were getting traffic or likes or shares, etc. So I think like there was there were transformative impacts on like very different levels of the media society, you know, ranging from citizen journalism in the blogging space all the way up to like the other media companies looking at us um, and sort of seeing what we were doing. How will you remember Matt? I remember Matt, when I think back now, the times that are sort of most just to me are the times when, uh, you know, he was laughing, joking, having a good time and, and fully energized, right? Like having ideas. Um, he was a very passionate um, and driven person. And I think that's kind of a, a pretty standard characteristic of, of a lot of entrepreneurs. But like, he was just a lot of fun to be around, you know, like I actually... The time we spent together was incredibly enjoyable. I have very fond memories of that. Matt Buckland, author of So You Want to Build a Startup, Tech Wonder Kid, a digital fundi, an entrepreneur, an innovator, a journalist, a publisher, an author, a mountain biker, and a compulsive dreamer who had big dreams. I'm a booker. I'm a booker. I'm a booker. I'm a booker.